Father, we we depend on nothing more but the truth of your word. You are faithful, perfect in all of your ways. And here tonight, Father, we we come to a passage of scriptures, Lord, that is some would say is the heart of the truth of the gospel given to those whom you have called to be your children. Father, we invite the Holy Spirit right now to come and touch me. I'm feeble. Oh man, and these scriptures are loaded. They're loaded with truth that we need to hear, that we need by the power of your spirit to implant upon our hearts. Come and remove all the distractions, technical and everything else. Visit us through your word and by your spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Karen. Well, let's just jump right into it. You're not going to have it up on the screen, so if you want to get time, go to Romans 8 and put it on your phone and um, or in your Bible if you brought one in your hand and, and let's, um, let's do what we need to do. So please stand with me as we read from Romans chapter 8. Oh, there we go. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so Romans chapter 8. Verses 8, 31, 39. So you can put your phones away now. <laughs> Says verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with his with him grant us everything? And who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, 
that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. It's been a few months since we have took a detour from the book of Romans. And we started this sermon series by calling it God's message to the whole world. And we felt led to go there, at least I did, as teaching elder here, because of what we saw coming and is still here in the West, in the church, how there was a great division that was attacking the church, and I would say in the matters of the gospel. And so we felt led to go there and to take the book of Romans and to preach to ourselves God's message to the whole world. And in that sermon series over the last um, eight chapters, um, the first seven chapters addressed the plight of all humanity, which included both Jews and Gentile. According to Romans 3, 9, Paul says, what then are we Jews any better off? Jews are God's covenant people from Genesis. We see call of Abraham that God was going to give a people. And so they're the people of God. And Paul says in Romans 3, 9, are Jews any better off? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, meaning we're equally sinful. In our hearts, we're born like that from birth. So don't let anybody fool you that because they are Jew ethnically, that somehow they have some inherent righteousness before God. But in the book of Romans, we see Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. That's included the Jew and the Gentile, black and the white and everybody else in between that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We must remember that. But then we come to what many Bible readers and Bible theologians calls the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Brother Michael Bowen says it's his favorite chapter in the whole entire Bible. He's not the only one. He would fall in line with many of the great saints. They would say that Romans is just a book itself, but especially Romans chapter eight. Um, that it is one of the, if not the greatest chapter in all of the 66 books of the Bible that God has given to us. And so in Romans chapter 8, Apostle Paul starts, it's where we see where he starts to separate out of the human race of Jew and Gentile. But referencing the work of the Holy Spirit for those who are led by God's Spirit, Paul says they are God's sons. This is the first time we see Paul using this language. Before it's been Jew and Gentile. But in Romans 8, Paul turns the corner. He's now referencing that the spirit of God, those who are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And that the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Godhead, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. 
that the Holy Spirit, the one that's here tonight with me, with you, if you are a true child of God, that the Holy Spirit himself, he testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is why we're titling this sermon tonight and moving forward. God's message to the children of God. Before it was to the world, but now it is to the children of God. Because it is a distinction between the world and the children of God. And so tonight, this message is to the children of God. And what a message we need. Roman 8 is written to the visible church. Those who profess to be believers, they're the children of God. Those who have come to believe what Paul says in chapter 1, which is the gospel of God. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Old Testament, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Which God tells the first man and the first woman when they fail and they committed high treason against God, God gave them a promise. That's how we get the Christmas story. That one would come and he would rescue Sozo, God's people, from their sins. And that he would be of the lineage of David, a descendant of David, according to the flesh, King David, one of the greatest kings among the Jews in Jerusalem, this gospel. The gospel of God is this. It is God's love in saving sinners. From what, Pastor Hardy? This is where a lot of people leave it off. Saving us from what? What do we mean about God's love? God's love, the gospel of God, is God's love in saving rebellious sinners from eternal destruction and separation from what? From this love that we're going to talk about tonight. From this love. That's the gospel. You ever someone said, what's the gospel? It is God's action coming into the world and saving sinners from eternal it's hard for us to grasp that sometimes, the word eternal. The word of God says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in our hearts. But even with that, it's still hard for us to grasp that reality. But this gospel of God is the love of God, God's love in saving sinners from this eternal destruction. And the separation from his love from all eternity. It's powerful. And so in that we get to see what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, first slide. This gospel of God. And Paul says here, and we know that in all things works together for the good of those who love God. And who are called 
Called by who? Called by God. We spoke to this. I'm going to make some points to it. But who are called? God does the calling. To what? According to his purpose. And Paul says in that all things. In verse 29, Paul says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? To the image of his son. This is what we call the end of the sanctification that you're going through. You're wondering why God just won't leave you alone. God will not just leave you alone. God is conforming you to who? Jesus. God wants you to be like his son. Jesus wasn't mean. He don't want you to be mean. <laughs> so if you're mean and you say, I just want to be mean and I still want to be like Christ, then you don't understand the gospel. No, it says to conform to the image of his son. Who wants to serve a God that's mean? Mean-spirited. No, he's conforming us to his son, Jesus the Christ, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So God foreknew, he predestined. This is, we talked about that, all that foreknowledge language. And then in verse 30, and those he predestined before the foundations of the world that Ephesians 1 um, referenced that God chose us in love. He predestined us and he also called. And those who he called out of Egypt, out of Egypt where Satan was the God of our lives, he was the father of us. But God reached down by his merciful good hand, perfect love, and he pulled us out of Egypt, out of the world, out of spiritual darkness, spiritual chaos and confusion. He called. And God's kind of kind of called what he calls. You can't not hear. He says when his call goes out, he says in John 10, he said, when my call go out, my sheep. Those whom I know, those whom I created, God says, they will hear. No doubt about it. <laughs> They're going to hear it. <laughs> now, they might be fighting it. They might be a hobo. They might be doing drugs on the corner. They may be somewhere doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But God says, they will come. My sheep will hear my voice. And they will hearken to it in the King James Version. And they will come. And they will be justified. And those whom he justified, sum it all up, they will be glorified. The summary, the consummation of all things is that we will be glorified. We're in our text tonight, Apostle Paul, he comes to a dramatic, in many ways, a crescendo of the assurance and the security that all believers have in God. You really need to hear this. That all believers have in God. The assurance and the security that we have in God. And Paul starts out his, his conversation in verse 31 it's a general question to his audience, then the Roman church, and to us in the here and the now. 
He puts these general questions that are in many ways, they are very provocative rhetorical questions that reinforces God's unwavering assurance to us. Unwavering. Man, I'm so glad God is not like me. Man, you know, I'm hot, cold some days. We all are as Christians. I think God, he says what he says in Malachi. He's a God that changes not. God is neither hot nor cold. In fact, God said, I don't like my coffee like that. Whether if you hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out. I don't like that lukewarmness. God is not like us. He's a, he, he saves you. He don't get mad and give, you, give up on you. Throw you back. Now, he will discipline you. That's a different story. But he doesn't stop loving you. That's why we love God. Because God doesn't give up. We can come to a place that we can almost give up on people. Like I saw one of the young ladies that stands on the corner here named Patty. And Patty has been out here about four or five years. She has five children. And when she came down here in Fairfield before she got on drugs, she was very pretty, still pretty. But you can see what drugs have taken a toll on her body. She's lost all of her ability to chew on a nice steak and all of that stuff. And, and you know, you can almost just see Patty. She's out there every day hustling, doing what she does to get money. And you can almost just give up. And every now and then I see Patty and I saw her. Patty, you want me to pray for you to go home? She says, no, nah, I don't want to go home. Home I'm talking about going up, going up yonder. <laughs> and she don't, and she's like, I don't want to go up yonder. I said, well, you're out here on this corner. That's what you want me to do for you. And so I end up praying for her, always asking God, um, who is a God that changes not. I don't know if Patty is one of his children or not. That's up to God. But here's what I do know. The word of God says his sheep, they were his for us. And I pray that one day Patty were his for us and that she would come home and that the great shepherd would set her free from the bondage that holds her in captivity. So this, Paul puts these questions to us here in Romans 8, 31, that reinforces his love, God's love, his unwavering assurance to us. And Paul starts out, you can put the text back up, Jeremiah, Romans 8, 1, 8, 31. He says, what? Then are we to say about these things? What things is Paul referring to? All of the things that he referred to in Romans 8, 1 through 30. This is why it's good to read the whole Bible. Because if you just jumped in and started preaching Romans 8, 31, and you don't know anything about Romans 8, 1 to verse 30, then you're going to be lost. Because Paul has given to us a lot of detailed meat on the bone. So Paul says, what then are we to say about these things? These things that he has communicated to us in Romans 1, Romans 8, 1 through 30. Carrying the underlying idea that God has demonstrated his righteousness toward his people in such a way as to leave no doubt God, I want there to be no doubt here tonight that their relationship with him is all of grace. 
God wants there to be no doubt. He wants there to be no mistaking uh, understanding of this, that there's there's no doubt that the relationship that you have with God here tonight, that it's all of grace. In his unmerited favor, meaning you didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't go to work for it. It's all of God. It's his unmerited favor. That it is totally unconditional privilege granted of his own good pleasure. If you ever wanted to say what privilege is, and you're a Christian, you got privilege. <laughs> now that's one you should write about. You should go on Facebook. I got privilege. Why? Because I'm a Christian. Why? I just born into it. Called out by God. Why he call you? I don't know. I have privilege. <laughs> Not white privilege, black privilege. I just have privilege as a human being. Now that's a privilege you should talk about. Just born into it. Just called by God grace. Predestined. Why did he choose you? You were no better. I was no better. We did the same stuff. So why are you a Christian? You dare not say, because Pastor Hardy, I brush my teeth in the morning. <laughs> I have fresh breath, you know. I take Listerine. <laughs> I do water picking and stuff like that. I floss. <laughs> I wear nice, clean clothes. And so when he sees me, he sees me tight and sharp. <laughs> I keep the Second Amendment or whatever it is. <laughs> he had to save me. Don't, please don't say that. Paul wants us to get that. That all of what we have tonight is our free grace, unmerited favor, unconditional privilege, granted of his own good pleasure. That's why I call it the mystery of God's love. Because if I could tell you why he loves you, I'll, it wouldn't be the Trinity, it'd be quattro. I think that's Spanish for what? Four, right? Quattro. It would be me, and I ain't the quattro. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but quattro, whatever y'all know. Number four, it wouldn't be the Trinity. It'd be boo 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 Elton. I said, I don't know. It's called a mystery why God called some. I can't tell you why. And that should humble you. That should break you. That should, that should give your heart a sense of just, just relaxing, just knowing that if you are a child of God, that it was, it, was, it was not of you and your own doing. It was just God and his God stuff. And so in this text, Paul says, what then? And then he goes into, he presents five questions that points to this assurance of God's amazing love. That we have. And the first thing Paul points out, he says, if God is for us. All right, Darren, I put the text back up there. 31. I'm going to walk through the text now. If God is for us. See that? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us. Who is against us? All of the opposition of others is of no account, God says. If he's for you, he saved you. God said, I'm, 
I don't change my mind. If God is for you, who is against us? This does not mean that there are no adversaries around. The thought is simply that no adversary can defeat God. Nothing can defeat his plans or his purposes. Please let that sink in. If God, if God is for you, nothing can defeat God. Thereby, nothing can defeat you. That's why Romans 8.28 is true when God says to us, all things will work together for them that love God, who have been called according to his purpose. God has the power to work out the bad to good. So if God is for us, he tells the children of God that who can be against us? No one. There is no adversary. There is no trial. There is no persecution. Because God is on our side. And so Paul asks the question, who can, who, who can be against us? And then in verse 32, Paul says, he kind of answers the question. Why? And I'm going to come back to this. He, God, did not even spare his own son. This is why no one can defeat us, because God did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. And how will he not also with him grant us everything? God gave up the best gift, the most precious gift to himself, which was his own son. So who is against you? Who can defeat you? God has given the best gift. Second question Paul asks. He says, who then can bring an accusation against God's elect? See the word there? Elect, chosen, not wandering into the kingdom by osmosis, as I say here all the time. Someone just stumbles into the kingdom of God. They just stumble into the promised land. <laughs> they just kind of, oh, how I get here? <laughs> no, it says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect, his chosen ones, those in whom he has predestined? Who can bring an elect? This question that Paul is asking in a rhetorical way, it points to the believer being in a heavenly courtroom and being accused by no other then old Sloopfoot, I like to call him Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. You know where you ever seen some stinking? Flies are always there. That's why they come Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, because Satan stinks. When you see a flies, they're flying around dead animals, dead mucus. That's what they do. I don't know how flies can go into the funk, but they've been built for it. Satan's been built for the funk that he is. And one of the funks that he brings to us is that he's an accuser, as Revelation says, he's an accuser of the brethren. What do we mean by that? He's an accuser of the brothers and the sisters. Here's what he's doing with you tonight. God will not forgive you. God can't forgive you. God will never let you go. God will always hold your sins over your head. God will not love you the way that he, Pastor Harden, is talking about tonight. You're done. 
You've done too much evil. You've done too much wrong. That's what's wrong with some people you see on the corners, people that are in prison. They feel and believe that their sins have so separated them from God that God can never do anything to even bring him near to himself. Because Satan is hanging over their head and he's doing it right now tonight. You're not good enough. Why are you going to church? You know you're faking. How many of y'all felt that? Why are you going to church? Now, you know you clown up last night. Satan talks. He talks urban talk. He don't use that um, sweet uh, aristocratic language. He said, no, you know you clown. For real. He probably said, for real, for real. <laughs> no. NBA, your boy talk. He be right, right, right. You know you messing up. Why are you going to that church? You know you're a clown. You know you're a low down. He, man, he be rapping to you. You are bad. Why are you going? You know your breath stick. You ain't brush your teeth all day. Come on back. Don't come to church. Don't pick up the phone when Dion calls you. Hang up on him. Click. He's an accuser. But Paul is asking the question, who can bring the accusation against God's people, against his chosen ones? And then Paul says, it is God who justifies. Go back there, man. Give me go back to the next verse. Oh, here we go. It is God is the one who justifies. He is the one that gives us peace with his son when we believe. And therefore, we are justified, not because of us, because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's what Romans 5, 1 says. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did that. when he granted you faith to believe the story and you believe it here tonight. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what you believe. So Satan will bring the accusation and accusation. He brings them to me all the time. But God says, it is God who will justify us. Third question that comes up. God, Paul says, um, who is the one who condemns? Who's condemning you? What does Romans 8.1 say? Therefore, there is now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel of God. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. Not Elton, not Sandy, not you, not us. Christ Jesus died. Now hear me. What's happening now in the American church? Some people are being condemned because of their color of their skin. You must know the gospel. They're bringing up that you can't be forgiven. You, you need to go back and do some stuff over because Christ can't forgive you. But let's read it again. There is now no condemnation. It didn't say whether you did this or that. It said there is now for no condemnation. Who's condemning you tonight? Why are you in guilt? Because of something that happened 100 years ago or 500 years ago. Why are you in guilt tonight? Why are you beaten down? He said, therefore, there's no condemnation. Romans 8.1. And who's condemning you? Paul says, because it is Jesus who died. But even more, he has been raised. And he also is at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. 
Who's condemning you tonight? Well, they said you, you, you paid the church for five years, you stopped coming, and now you need to do all this and that in order to be. No. It's the gospel is the story of Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. So who's condemning you tonight? What is condemning you? What's got you paralyzed where you can't move forward in God and what he's called you to? What's stopping you tonight? Well, I don't pray enough. He says, Jesus died. Didn't say they prayed and then God forgave. It said Jesus died, but even more, he has been raised. He didn't stay dead. Gonna come back to that because that's important. All right. And it's Paul's moving on. And now he's getting to the heart of the matter. Verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Agape love. He's asking these questions. Who can separate us from the love of God? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's the the two questions, 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul said, can affliction do it? I brought this tonight because I wanted, we live in the West. And so we can sometimes kind of get caught up in the American way of life and and not really see the whole world. But here I have, it's called, get these magazines, read through them. Voices of Martyrs. Martyr someone, witness of Christ, who dies for Jesus. And we're American Christians, you really, sometimes, some of you travel, you read, man, people are being killed every day. And this is what I'm gonna get into, because Paul is asking the question, can distress, can affliction, persecution, and I believe that in a few years we're going to America, you can see it changing. We're going to start to feel some of that persecution. You already wasn't like, you're really not going to be like now. A famine, a being without, or danger, or sword. Paul said, can it separate us from the love of Christ? Can it separate us from the love of God? Can, does it have the power while we're in the affliction to separate us from the love of Christ? And then verse 36, Paul goes on. He quotes a Psalms, Psalms 42, 44, 22. He said, as it is written, because of you, because of you, Jesus, because of you, because I link myself with you, because I say I want to follow Jesus in this short pilgrim sojourn of life because of you, Jesus, we are being put to death all day long and we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Because of you, Jesus, 
Because of my love for you, I am, you are, we're being put to death all day long. The world will hate us, Jesus says. In John 17, John 15 says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, of this world, of this world, you would love you, but you're not of this world. You're not of this world, Jesus says. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own, celebrate you, give you all the awards. They would not be putting you to death and bring you to the slaughter to be killed like sheep. But because you're not of the world, Jesus, and here's what Jesus says, because you are not of the world. Here it goes. But I chose you. Here's again. But I chose you. I called you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. But can that separate us from the love of Christ? All of the persecution, all of the distress, all of the afflictions that we would go through. And Paul says in Acts 14, 22, he told the Ephesians people, he says, it is necessary to go through many hardships and tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. This is not a home. But Paul is asking a rhetorical question. Can this distress, can it separate you and I from the love of God? John MacArthur, a few weeks ago, one of his sermons, he says, and this is important for Christians to know. Guys, in this world, Christians will lose. You need to settle that right now. In this world, as Christians, we will lose. We get martyred. We get our heads cut off. We get killed all the day long. If you lose sight of that, um, it's just going to be a setup for you. We're not living for this world. We're living for the next one. But we live in this world for the next one, doing all of what God has called us to do, knowing that it's bringing death to us, that the world will not celebrate us, nor did it didn't celebrate Jesus. When I come to the close, but I want to make a couple points about God's love. God's love will never let us down. But give us the victory over all things. Why? Why is that so? Why is that? Why is that true? Why is that so real? That God's love, it will never let us down. But in fact, it will give us the victory over all things. Why? Why, Pastor Hardy? Because a resurrection message. It's really true. Verse 38, Jeremiah, here it goes. It says, no, Romans 8, 38. What, 37? It says, know that in all things, that's everything. It says back to that Romans 8, 28, in all things work together for good. That know in all these things, Paul says, all the afflictions, all the distress, 
Saints, hear me. There will be moments in your life as a Christian that you will be distressed and you will desire death itself. I like it when pastors tell people this life brings troubles and stress. I've had a few of them. They come and they go. It's because we live in a fallen world and it's broken and there's evil people and evil beings and evil things. But Paul says, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God loves you and I. And God says we are more than conquerors, even in all of the greatest afflictions and distress and persecution that we would experience. We are more than conquerors. And then Paul goes on to say this. Verse 38. Paul says we have we are more than conquerors. Super hypo conquerors in all things. Verse 38, he says, for I am persuaded, some translation says, convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, demons, devils, all kinds of angels, nor rulers of darkness, nor things present, things right now in your life, nor things to come that you don't even know that will come 25 years from now. When you're going through, when you've gotten the phone call that your mother has gone home to be with the Lord. And stress and heartache and loneliness that comes when loved ones die that we care for. The future things. Nor powers. Nor height. Nor depth. depth nor any other created thing Paul says it will not be able to separate us from here again. Agape, the love of God. It cannot and it will not separate you from the love of God. But Paul says in all of this, Paul says, I am convinced. I am pathos. I am convinced. I am persuaded. The Greek word is pathos. Persuaded. I am convinced, Paul says. I'm convinced, Paul says. That we as the believers, that these things will not separate us from the love of God. This word pathos means to come to believe the certainty of something. On the basis of being convinced to be certain, to be sure, to be convinced. Are you convinced tonight? What was Paul persuaded by that he was convinced that no distress, no height, no depth, no life, no angels, no rulers, no things present, no things to come, or any created other thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Saints, this is where this is where your Bible study has to go up in prayer. Paul said, I'm convinced, I'm certain. Means to come to believe the certainty of something. Are you convinced? And I have here in my notes as I come to a close. 
You have to sit at the cross. You have to meditate and ponder upon it every day. Do not go to a church that down the truck, the cross. Don't even give your ear to it. You have to meditate upon it, study it, read scriptures that points to it and pray for God to always grant you a deeper understanding of this reality of the cross. Paul says, I'm persuaded. Romans 5, 7 and 8 says, for while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But verse eight says, but God shows his what? Agape, love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why is he persuaded? That's why I had carrying them singing that hymn. And if I had time tonight, I would have them singing again, but we're not going to do it. You got you to sing that hymn. He died on that cross for you. It was, it was my sin, your sin. That's where you get to see the love of God. You get to hear, you get to, you get to think about it. Why is he dying for me while I was doing all the wrong and he did no wrong. There was no gout in his mouth. You have to be convinced. You want to be convinced of the love of God. Just, just look at the cross. God died for people whose whole aim is to go kill babies. What kind of love is that? Gang bangers, tax collectors, ruthless people. God didn't come to save the good people. God came to save the bad people, which is the part all of us were bad. What kind of love is that? Paul says, I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. When you search the wonders of the cross, you're astounded. And then Paul says in Ephesians, in the last text, and I'm done. Last slide. I say you have to pray to understand this love. You get glimpses of it. Here it comes and goes. Paul tells the Ephesians, he said, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power and in your inner being through his spirit. Keep going. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And see, I embolden it in dark. And Paul said, I pray that you, Ephesians, Urban hope. Being rooted and firmly established in what? Love. This agape love of God. That you may be able to comprehend 
with all the saints from all times and from all generations. What is the length? You can't outrun the love of God. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. you got to understand and comprehend the length of it. That his arms stretch way wide, more than you can even imagine. you got to understand his length and the width of his love. you got to understand the height of his love. You can run to the highest mountain and God says, my love will be there for you. And then Paul says, And then you go to the lowest depths of God's love. I want you to comprehend it. When you at your lowest, when you at your lowest, lowest. See, I read people who commit suicide. You know why they're committing suicide? Because they've lost hope in this reality, in the depth of God's love. When they're all by themselves, then their mama can't call them, and their daddy's already gone, and they have no one to turn to, and they can't see or hear or understand or comprehend this love of God. But Paul says, I want you saints to comprehend it. That when you're at your lowest, and you make the worst mistakes, but even when you're at the highest, you got your promotion, when you got your new house, and you've got all of your children, and they've all gotten married, they've all done the right thing, God said, I want you to comprehend my love. The width, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know where you find that love? You get a picture of it. Pick up a cross. Read how bad it was. I know we got the nice clean crosses. You go TJ Mackage, you're wearing them fake big crosses in there. But go look up and read on the internet. What was a Roman cross? What it was like. He was beaten. He was beaten to a place that he was unrecognizable. And he's unrecognizable. This is the gospel of God. The gospel of God is that God came to us and took on a beaten beyond a human reality where he had a host of all hell that was scorching him so that he could rescue me from my sexual sins and my greediness and my dislike for other people so that I could be here tonight as a pastor calling out to the people in Birmingham and Fairfield the manifold wisdom of God. This amazing love. That's why I had Karen them sing that hymn. How great this Father's love. And Paul says, pray for understanding. Sit at the cross. You get glimpses of it. That's why we're here in this room tonight. It's because of that love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to the close of Romans 8. And Lord, this could be a 
30 part sermon series just on this few verses of Romans just in itself. There's so much meat and truth in these words, in these texts, in these scriptures. And I know tonight, Father, my futile words can't even come close in trying to convey this amazing love, the mystery of your love. But Lord, you've promised that nothing, no distress, no angel, no ruler, no power, no heartache can separate us from your love. Because you came and died, rose again, and now you are exalted and you sit to the right hand, Father, interceding for us. Father, we need greater understanding of this love. Some parts of the church in America, Lord, they need this sermon tonight. They're beaten up. They're feeling condemned. Satan has gotten through. They're overwhelmed with guilt. I pray you would impress upon them. Romans 8.1. And Father, there will come moments in our lives where we will fall, we will make the mistakes, and we will sin, and the accuser of the brethren will come, beat us up, and say, you are not a Christian. He doesn't love you. He's not forgiving you. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit you would remind us through the encouragement of the saints and the brothers, Romans 5.1 and Romans 8.1. We believe, therefore we are justified. We have peace, transcendent peace that Karen was singing about earlier. Where you are, there is peace. Father, I know that they're saying that Right now in the Christian world, that suicide is on the rise among many professing believers. People are losing heart in this love that we're speaking about tonight. And they're giving up in the midst of the distress. Father, I pray that here tonight that none of us would, would go that route, no matter how tough it gets that we will remember this sermon, that you are there for us, that you've gone to the lowest depths and to the highest heights, and you've gone throughout the whole world to find us, to seek us out, and to call us home. Father, thank you for Romans 8. It's been a blessing to us here at Urban Hope, and may it continue to be so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we dismiss.
Well, Ephesians 3.20, receive God's benediction here tonight. Now to him who is able to do above, beyond, and all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever, forever. Amen. You are dismissed.